0: It's mid-August 1914, three weeks after the start of the Great War, and in a Melbourne theatre, singer Skipper Francis is performing an early version of his song, Australia Will Be There. It's a rallying cry that will catch on and inspire patriotic enlistment from Carlton to Cootamundra. A month later, on the 17th of September, news reaches Australia that confirms the lyrics of the song. Four members of the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force have been killed during the battle that wrested control of New Guinea back from the Germans. These are the first soldiers and sailors sent from Australia to die in the war, and it's sobering and stirring in equal measure. It's on that very spring day that James Henry Coughlin from the Omeo Plains, 250 miles northeast of Melbourne, becomes one of the first men from his district to sign up for the first Australian Imperial Force. James is 25, single, and lists himself as a natural-born British subject. He gives his profession as engineer and farmer and records his previous relevant experience as three years' membership of the Benambra Rifle Club and four years' previous enrolment in other regional gun clubs. Like thousands of young Australians, James is eager to get in quick and do his bit in the war that many people reckon will be over by Christmas. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Gallipoli is arguably the most scrutinized event in our history, and its horrors are well known and documented. Each Anzac Day, we commemorate the men who served on that forbidding peninsula, and all those who made such sacrifices on other World War I battlefields and in other conflicts. But it's the awful math of the so-called Great War that's seared in our collective memory. That's because of the 330,000 Australians who served overseas, a staggering 62,500 were killed, and another 155,000 were wounded. As terrible as those numbers are, they don't tell the full story of those wounded, sick, and mentally ill soldiers who made it home, but didn't recover. In her 2009 book, Shattered Anzac, Living with the Scars of War, the Trobe University historian Marina Larson wrote that records show some 14,000 Anzacs died as a result of their wounds between 1925 and 1940. How many succumbed in the first decade after Gallipoli isn't known, though it's safe to assume it was many thousands more. Some became part of the official death toll, but many others did not. James Henry Coughlin was born in Carlton, Melbourne, in 1889, the youngest of John and Sarah Coughlin's four sons. Though born in the city, he grew up on the family farm on the Omeo Plains. His father was well-known and well-respected in the district as a councillor, while his mother had her hands full with her brood, which, by 1895, included a baby daughter. After going to school locally, James moved to Fitzroy, where he trained and worked as an engineer. Then, on the 17th of September, 1914, he answered the call to fight for king and country. James did army training in Spartan conditions at a sprawling tent camp in the northwestern Melbourne suburb of Broadmeadows. There, Instructors taught him and other volunteers how to use their rifles, bayonets and entrenching tools. Commanding officers also hammered home the importance of keeping their heads down on the battlefield. James was attached to the 2nd Infantry Brigade of the 6th Battalion, and on the 22nd of December 1914, he and his brothers-in-arms sailed from Port Melbourne aboard His Majesty's Australian transport ship Themistocles. The ship's last Australian stop was Albany in Western Australia. From there, on New Year's Eve 1914, Themistocles and the 16 other ships that comprised the 2nd Australian Imperial Force convoy steamed westwards. There were about 11,000 Australian soldiers aboard these vessels, most hoping to fight the Germans in Europe to defend Mother Britain. Instead, they were headed for the Middle East. With several German cruisers destroyed in the previous weeks, there was little to fear in the Indian Ocean, and indeed it was a peaceful voyage. For men like James, this trip was a grand adventure, offering sights and sounds and smells they'd never dreamed of experiencing back home. When they reached Colombo in what is now Sri Lanka, this excitement proved too much for about 500 soldiers who broke ship To see this foreign city. They all returned or were rounded up, and the convoy continued to Aden in Yemen before going via the Suez Canal to the ancient Egyptian city of Alexandria. They arrived in the first week of February and travelled south to a camp near Cairo to be put through further training. When James and other men had a bit of time off, they were excited to explore exotic Egypt. In letters home to his father, whose extracts were published in local newspaper, the Omeo Standard and Mining Gazette, James told of finding a cave near the army camp that connected to tunnels that ran in the direction of the pyramids. We followed it as far as we were game, he wrote, but the air was bad. I could feel it in my eyes and the candle would hardly burn. So we had to turn back, but I have a theory that it connects with the pyramid. When James did visit Egypt's most famous ancient landmarks, it was with an engineer's awe of their construction and sheer magnitude. He wrote, They are simply marvellous and have to be seen to be appreciated. The large one covers 13 acres at the base and is 460 feet high, but about four miles to climb. There are billions and billions of tons of rock in it, and goodness knows how much is buried. Some of the stones must weigh from 50 to 100 tonnes each. The view from the apex, James wrote, was beautiful, and he was also mightily impressed with what he saw of the interior chambers and galleries. He wrote, They are perfectly true and built without cement, being dovetailed in, which makes it all the more remarkable. While tourists had visited these sites for centuries, there was still then much to discover, And James knew that Americans were nearby, excavating what he called a buried city of tombs where they had found some remarkable and valuable relics. Outsiders were prohibited from entering the site, but James and one of his mates were game. Scaling a wall, they had what he called a good hunt around seeing fine sculptures, skulls and bones, complete mummies and ancient utensils before they were booted out by a military policeman. On at least two of his days off, James and his mates went into Cairo. There, at the museum, he gazed upon Pharaoh's mummy and was astounded that he could still see red hair on the ancient ruler's head. James glimpsed one of Cairo's incredible cemetery cities, saw an ancient fortress with a big stone mill worked by veiled women, and visited several mosques where he donned slippers to observe Muslims at prayer. James' letters home portray a literate, intellectually and culturally curious young man, and it's no wonder he also keenly felt how European military history had shaped the sights he was seeing. So many places, he wrote, bore destructive traces left by the French some 115 years earlier. He wrote, I little thought when reading the history of Napoleon that I would be walking over some of the same ground. There was no way James could know that he was very soon to play a part in the historic event that would be credited with forging Australia's national identity. In February and March 1915, militarily at least, there was, he wrote, nothing of note occurring yet to speak about. But his letters took so many weeks to reach home that by the time they did, those words were no longer remotely true for him and so many other Australian soldiers, even if it would be further weeks before this was known to his family and the Australian public. From the second week of April, James spent a fortnight on the Greek island paradise of Lemnos. There, he and other Anzacs mustered and prepared for their imminent deployment into battle. By the 21st of April, about 200 ships were at anchor in Lemnos's major port. Three days later, James and his comrades were aboard one of these vessels and steaming northeast, told by their commanding officers that early tomorrow morning they would, quote, be hard at it. Their destination was an obscure Turkish peninsula called Gallipoli. The 3rd Brigade was to land first. James and other men of the 6th Battalion would come ashore at 6.30am as part of the second wave. James wrote that he and his comrades were told by their commander that they were, quote, taking on something that had never been attempted since the time of William the Conqueror, that there was to be no surrender. The men, he wrote, now knew they were playing for keeps. What they couldn't imagine was that within hours, 133 of them would be dead. Ordered to go to bed early, James, like many of the boys, was too excited to sleep. I got up and washed myself, he wrote, so that I could get ashore clean. James and the other soldiers had breakfast at around 3am. They got into their ship's boats and were then towed towards the beach at Gallipoli. He wrote, As soon as we grounded, we sprang out and waded ashore. We did not lose a man from our boat, as we were only under shellfire and they were bursting high. That wasn't the only promising sign the third brigade was making short work of the turks having quote driven the enemy off the cliff with one magnificent bayonet charge in 20 minutes once up the beach james and his mates formed up and started climbing for the front line he wrote on the way we came across a turk sniper who hit one of our boys on the knee and then surrendered a little further on one of the lads happened on another he made one holy drive at the turk with his bayonet but the cow dodged it, and it went into the ground up to the hilt. The Turk should have had him then, but he was too rattled, and the lad snapped it off in the ground and swung him one with the barrel on the jaw. The Turk fell, and then the boy put in the Australian leather. Someone saw him an hour after, still kicking the pieces. James and the men with him reached the right flank, but were ordered to reinforce the left. Being a bushman, James blazed his own track up the hills, followed by a mate. The landscape, he thought, was a bit like Heidelberg back home, covered as it was with dense shrubs about chest height. Reaching a hilltop, James saw Australians from numerous battalions. Now things became, to use his word, lively, because the Turks up ahead weren't about to surrender or be kicked to pieces by Aussie boots. The air was filled with bullets and shrapnel, but James and his mate tried to press forwards. He recalled, We only got about 30 yards when down we went flat, for such an inferno greeted us as would be difficult to imagine. We continued to crawl forward, for the machine guns were firing over the tops of the bushes. We progressed in this manner for a while, and the firing redoubled in intensity, and shrapnel exploded closer. Those instructors back at the Broadmeadows camp telling men to keep their heads down? With black humour, James now thought this advice quite unnecessary because ducking was a natural gift that no amount of instruction can improve. And keeping out of sight was all James and his mate could do as they huddled behind bushes. He wrote, It was an absolute cert that if we moved an inch from our bush, we would be cut into mincemeat. We both agreed that we were well gone in any case, but if we stayed where we were, we might do some good and might have a million-to-one chance of hanging out till it got dark. But nightfall wasn't for a very long time. Pinned behind bushes, James wondered if what he was doing was cowardly because the front line was supposedly still somewhere up ahead though he barely saw how that was possible given all the fire they were taking from that direction. James was in two minds. He wrote, If there were men ahead of us, it was our place to go on. On the other hand, I really believe that it was absolutely certain death to go from our bush, for we would have been riddled in a second and be no more good. But a soldier should never think of himself, James didn't have to ponder any decision for long. Within five minutes of taking cover behind the bushes, his mate yelled out that he was hit. Turning around as best he could while keeping flat, James saw his friend's leg had been ripped by shrapnel. He fumbled out a field dressing and did his best, but before the bandage was half on, it was soaked through with blood. James wrapped his mate's putty around the wound but still it bled and bled. The closest stretcher bearers, they were down the beach, some two and a half miles away. To increase their chances, James tried to dig in with his entrenching tool. A bullet smacked into the ground just in front of his head and a split second later, another grazed one of his buttocks. He didn't have time to count his luck because almost instantly another Turkish bullet blasted into James's left shoulder. I roared louder than a bull, he recalled. My poor wounded mate worked his way over to me, got my equipment off and ripped open my tunic and shirt. By the time I had recovered somewhat and finding I was not blown up, I started to drag myself to the rear. I remember going about 60 yards and sitting up behind another bush, feeling much stronger but thinking that nothing mattered much. Then I got to my feet and dragged myself back over the hill. Temporarily out of the firing line, though he had no idea what had become of his mate, James collapsed into a captured Turkish trench. Exhausted and bleeding, he started to go to sleep. But another digger bandaged his wound, got him up on his feet, and sent him on his way back down to the beach. James was one of the many walking wounded. Sniper bullets sizzled all around these men, and... In his words, many a poor devil thus got his quietus. That James survived to reach the beach was a miracle. He wrote, No man had any earthly right to come out of that inferno alive. The other miracle was that he walked out when a battlefield doctor said the bullet he'd stopped should have killed him twice over. James wasn't safe yet not with the punts evacuating the wounded to hospital ships being showered with shrapnel from shells bursting overhead. But again, James made it and was loaded onto one of these hospital ships. Eventually, as the vessel sailed and the Gallipoli Peninsula receded, James saw the scale of the battle now in progress and understood that it wasn't going to be won in a day, a week, a month, or perhaps ever. so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. James was transported to the army hospital at the Mena camp in Egypt. There, he was disgusted to find that his money and personal effects had been stolen on the hospital ship. In the military hospital, James kept as informed as he could about what was going on back at Gallipoli. He was appalled by stories of Turkish atrocities and held out hope that the battle might be evened up when he heard Australian artillery was to be deployed and talk of the dismounted light horse being used as infantry. But James's own experience there and that of older veterans, confirmed that Australia was now fighting a new type of war. He wrote, Our old South African soldiers reckon that they saw more bullets in five minutes than they saw during the whole of the Boer War. James didn't know which of his mates had survived their wounds because they'd been split up when they got back to Egypt. He did know that one, named Parker, was in bad shape, having taken a bullet in the chin, which smashed his jaws and lodged under one eye. He wrote, I suppose he will be going back to Australia. But James didn't know if he would ever see home again because his wound was much more serious than a simple bullet to the shoulder. That piece of Turkish lead had glanced off a bone and bored down through the muscle of his back, smashing a rib before lodging between two nerves in his spine. Writing to his father on the 22nd of May, James explained that doctors had told him they most likely wouldn't be able to remove the bullet. These doctors, he said, regarded him as, quote, non-recoverable, so they were going to send him to another hospital that was regarded by soldiers as a dead house, that is, a mortuary. Receiving this letter more than a month after it was written and not knowing whether his son was already dead of his injuries, his father went to Melbourne to see what he could find out and to send money to James. Through June, James appeared on the lists of the dangerously ill and wounded that appeared regularly in Victorian newspapers now that the scope of the Gallipoli tragedy was starting to become public. By July, the Omeo Standard and Mining Gazette was reporting he was progressing favourably. The newspaper also related that the bullet lodged near his spine had been successfully removed. But that wasn't correct, and on the 17th of September 1915, one year to the day after he enlisted, James Coghlan was sent back to Australia aboard the ship Beltana. After arriving home to his parents, brothers and sister, James was accorded a hero's welcome on the 24th of November when he was fated at the Benambra Town Hall by what the Omeo newspaper called a large and enthusiastic audience. The brave boy who'd survived Gallipoli's lead-lashed shores was reported to look very healthy despite the severity of his wounds and their after-effects. Townsfolk gave James a specially made gold medal that was inscribed, presented by his Omeo Plains friends to Private J. H. Coughlin, who was severely wounded on April 25 at Gallipoli. Councillors and clergymen made speeches lauding him, and James responded by telling interesting stories of his experiences before enjoying an entertainment program in his honour that included patriotic songs and music. James's shoulder wound had healed, but the lodged bullet and his internal injuries remained a serious concern. Though that Omeo newspaper claimed he looked well, In reality, James had lost a lot of weight, was often in great pain, and sometimes found breathing difficult. Further surgeries didn't fix him, and James was officially discharged from the AIF in April 1916, one year after he'd gone ashore at Gallipoli. On that first anniversary, the Victorian government refused to hold official state commemorations, leaving local councils, schools, and other institutions to put on their own Anzac Day celebrations. To mark the occasion, the Omeo newspaper published its roll of honour. Reading this list, James might have even felt lucky, because in addition to himself and other wounded, It included seven local lads who'd been killed at Gallipoli or died soon after of their injuries. According to the military history website, theirdutydone.com, James got a pension of three pounds per fortnight, which was only about 70% of the basic wage. He moved back to Fitzroy, where he was closer to the ongoing medical treatment that he needed. In recognition of his gallant service, and possibly to help him supplement his pension, Fitzroy Council offered him the job of librarian at their free library. Although new to this sort of work, James quickly impressed the councillors by creating the library's first complete and up-to-date catalogue of its thousand or so books. The library had more than 200 borrowers, and these locals took to librarian Coglin for his efficiency, courtesy, and gentlemanly nature. Whether he was collecting fines for overdue loans or making suggestions on how more books could be made accessible to borrowers, James's name made regular appearances in the pages of local newspaper Fitzroy City Press. A July 1916 article read, Mr. J. Coghlan, Fitzroy's soldier librarian, fit in the position nicely. The librarian carries round with him a bullet, somewhere inside his lithe body, as a memento of his war experiences. Doesn't know exactly where the piece of lead is located. All J.C. knows is that it's somewhere in his innards. It has not so far interfered with the capable carrying out of his duties among the books and papers. While James had just last year written letters home that were published in the newspapers, he now received correspondence from soldier mates serving in Europe that he shared with the press. One of his chums wrote that he spent all of his days freezing and hadn't seen the sun for a month. On the 25th of April, 1917, the second anniversary of the Gallipoli landing, James was best man at a friend's wedding at the Northcote Baptist Church. That year, there were official Anzac Day celebrations, including a march of veterans through Melbourne, but they were shifted to the 27th of April. So it was that at the wedding, when a toast was raised to our Anzac and absent heroes, James couldn't help but bitterly and vocally deplore that the commemorations weren't being held on the proper date. It's understandable that he felt this way. It had been two years to the day since so many of his brothers-in-arms had been killed and he'd been left with a bullet that was still causing him pain and grief. Why not honour those sacrifices on the right day? While his mates continued to suffer in the trenches of Europe, James's war continued in its own quiet fashion in suburban Melbourne. By late June 1917, his condition had worsened again, and he had to take leave from the library to seek treatment at the base hospital on St Kilda Road. It was around this time that he gave his gold medal to his younger sister Bertha, then in her early 20s, and she mounted it as a brooch so she could wear it close to her heart. James's many friends visited him at the base hospital and were shocked by the conditions he had to endure in Ward 11, which the Fitzroy City Press described as a noisy barn-like enclosure. James was the only serious medical case on the ward and other soldiers kept him awake at night after lights out with their dirty jokes and antics. The Fitzroy City Press was appalled and editorialised this way. A returned Gallipoli hero deserved far better treatment than was meted out to Mr Coghlan. And every visitor, there were dozens, are prepared to verify the statements made. "'Tis well to fight for one's country, but let's do our best to make it easy for those who fought. Words are good, actions are better.'" James was, the newspaper said, a patient sufferer and grateful for the kindnesses of the friends who visited. After two weeks enduring Ward 11, James was moved to Ward 2, a far more pleasant space known as the Sun Room. There his condition improved a little. The Fitzroy City Press reported, he is receiving proper attention and not before it was time. Yet James's biggest problem remained that bullet lodged in his body. Even x-rays apparently couldn't show exactly where it was. Nevertheless, doctors operated again at the end of July, but they couldn't remove the bullet, or repair James's internal injuries, which reportedly included an abscess on the bowel and a kidney impeded by scar tissue. With James not getting better, his friends moved him to Pennycross, a private hospital in Dandenong. Their hope was that he'd improve gradually and would soon be able to go home to the family farm. But it wasn't to be. In those days, post surgical complications were far more common because antibiotics were yet to be developed. James contracted septicemia, a bacterial infection that can initially cause high fever, abdominal pain, confusion, and anxiety before, in serious cases, resulting in a sudden drop in blood pressure called septic shock that can lead to multi-organ failure. In the early hours of the 2nd of August 1917, two years, three months and eight days after he landed at Gallipoli, Private James Coughlin finally died from the effects of that Turkish bullet. Trying to offer some solace to his loved ones, the Fitzroy City Press claimed that his passing came peacefully, quietly, and calmly, though this usually isn't the case with sepsis. In any event, James, finally free of his pain, was buried at Coburg Pine Ridge Cemetery on the 3rd of August. His father, a brother, and uncle represented the Coglan family. Beneath the cold winter sun With the coffin draped in the Union Jack and adorned with many floral wreaths, the burial service was conducted by the same Church of England reverend who had baptised James as a baby 28 years earlier. The following Monday, at the fortnightly meeting of the Fitzroy City Council, officials remembered Liberian Coughlin for his fine character, battlefield gallantry and work ethic. They resolved to send a letter to his parents, and these condolences were published in the Omeo Standard and Mining Gazette newspaper. The councillors wrote that they, quote, feel that he died for Australia, just as if he had fallen on the battlefield, and they mourn the loss of a brave soldier as well as a faithful officer. Lest we forget... Private James Coughlin, and the thousands of others who died far from the battlefield in that war and in others. There is a sad postscript to this sad story. Any comfort the Fitzroy Council's letter may have offered to the Coghlan family was short-lived. James's mother Sarah died in November 1920, leaving his father John a widower, and In late 1922, this poor man had to endure yet more heartache when his only daughter, Bertha, disappeared in Melbourne. In early 1923, her decapitated body was found dumped in the Yarra River. Although he'd been dead five years, James Coghlan was back in the newspapers because that Gallipoli medal he'd given to Bertha was now regarded by detectives as a vital clue to solving her murder. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I came to James Coughlin's story while researching his sister's fate, and you can hear her story in a previous episode called The Murderous Mrs. Mitchell. Many thanks to Lorraine Newland of the terrific website Remembering the Past Australia for bringing Skipper Francis's song Australia Will Be There to my attention. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to get every episode as soon as it's released. You can also show your support by leaving a review and by simply telling a friend or two. For more stories, photos, and information, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and Forgotten Oz Podcast on Facebook. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news.